Hello, you gorgeous bastards. The following episode contains some sexy and naughty language as well as spoilers. Kick back, take off your trousers, and please listen responsibly. Welcome in, bienvenue, welcome, come on in. I'm Dave Michaels. I'm Brian Betts. And this is Beer Me A Movie. It's the show where, in the immortal words of the Nard Dog, Andy Bernard, from The Office, Beer Me A Stapler, Beer Me A Calculator, me and Brian go back and forth week to week, beering each other a movie. Lord, beer me strength. Exactly. We never know what we're going to pick the next week. Our lists are way too long. We get to surprise <laughs> each other constantly, and you, the audience, you get to participate every single last week of the month. That's right. The last week of the month is completely up to you guys. You comment on Facebook if you want your picks to be known, or you can email them to bearmeamoviepod at gmail.com if you want to keep them secret. And then at the end of the month, we, we randomly select one of them, and we talk about your movie. Exactly, but screw them right now. This is all about me. That's right. This is episode two. I bearded the first movie, and then you bearded me the second movie. And the movie that I bearded you and you, the collective audience, the listeners, I wanted something that was going to hit ridiculously hard. I wanted to be a Dave movie. I wanted to get to my Mount Rushmore of directors right away, and I went Steven Spielberg first, right off the bat. We are talking 1982's E.T. Yeah, that was... uh. I think I think the kids call it a power move. Yeah, I think that's the right word for it. I yeeted you a, uh, a movie this time. I didn't yeah. so much beer you. I yeeted <laughs> you one. You made the first time last a long time. That's right. I wanted to go big, man. I want to see if we can break this thing right away because we need to figure out a baseline for our arbitrary scoring because so far, I complained to Brian. I said, man, it feels like we're going a, a bit too generous with a lot of these picks. And then he said, dude, we've been within one point of... <laughs> The critical score on our last Patreon episode that we did with The Thing, and then our first episode here with Ocean's Eleven, so uh, we might be pretty dead on so far. Yeah, it was an easy complaint to refute. You want to judge this thing? Let's, yeah, let's judge E.T., the extraterrestrial, because it's a movie that deserves to be judged. (laughs) That's right. What we do here is we have an arbitrary scale that we've come up with, and we come up with a zero to ten score or if it is really good which i gotta imagine is probably gonna happen here you turn it up to 11 as a little extra bonus exactly and all of the categories are subjective except one and honestly i think we might break that one today so i think you're right uh we said we couldn't but in episode two we're breaking all the rules good so we have them right yeah that's that's why you create rules so you can then proceed to Ruin them. Exactly. Make a mockery of them. Why don't you lead us off there, Brian? I know last week we changed up the order and started with casting. Uh, We decided that was a bad idea, and we're going back (laughs) to the way we originally (laughs) planned. Uh, That's the fun of this, is uh, we get to make the rules and do whatever the hell we want. You shut up at home. Shut up! (laughs) It's like the opposite of whose line, where nothing's made up and the points do matter. That's exactly it. We flipped the script. On Drew and his merry band of people. It's just the way we arrive at them doesn't matter. Exactly. Come up with a scoring system and make a Colin mockery out of the whole thing. Oh, I like your Ryan style. <laughs> oh, God, that was too easy. 
does. Something, something Wayne Brady. Of course. Greg proves. So we're going to start off again with story and motivation like we originally intended. And of course, we are pulling directly from Wikipedia. So if you want, you can follow along. Or you can edit it and hopefully it sticks. It may, it may not. The best. I feel like, a like police officer, I feel like, sitting at Wikipedia headquarters going like, don't you fucking touch E.T. <laughs> I feel like there are definitely like Wikipedia vigilantes who wait for bullshit edits and they go, <laughs> not on my watch. They Dikembe Mutombo it. They must be. That's why they ask for like the dollar every now and then. They got to pay the, the security man watching the edits. Got to pay the, the Batman of Wikipedia. I feel like, though, if you get a lot of people to make the same edit, it might go through. They might believe it. Uh, that's how democracy dies right now, Brian. Careful. Well, it's Wikipedia. Good point. Alien botanists secretly visit Earth at night to gather specimens in a California forest. <laughs> I didn't even put together that they're just like science aliens. Like you're <laughs> so just, used to like little things invading like in Mars attacks, ack, ack, and here they're just like, no, I want to, that plant looks cool as shit. I want it. I want to study that plant. I'm not trying to take over anything. I just want to look at stuff. It makes the ending make a whole lot more sense now, too. That's true. <laughs> you look at it that way. Can you imagine putting an ET in a biodome with Pauly Shore? Um, you know what? I never wanted a sequel to ET, but now I do. I was going to say it's a sequel to biodome, if anything. <laughs> I mean, it's connecting the universe. You didn't know you needed it until now. <laughs> Speaking of Biodome, stay tuned. No, I'm kidding. Jesus. <laughs> um, we'll get there. But all right. One of the alien botanists separates from the group, fascinated by the distant city lights, but U.S. government vehicles arrive and chase the startled creature. Can we talk about the U.S. government wieners? How they're just wearing jeans and they're have just keys? just wearing jeans and they have keys, and we know this because Steven Spielberg just left the camera. Like a straight up junk shot. Yeah, of this he was one like, dude, and he kept going back to it too. All you're gonna see of these government officials are their waistlines until I'm ready to show you faces. Eventually, but he's like making a statement here, like, "Yeah, U.S. government, bunch of dicks, get it?" <laughs> and, then, and this one guy, he's got keys. <laughs> That's how you know it's the same guy because he's always got those keys. That's right. The other aliens depart, abandoning him on Earth. The one who separated. Sure. In a nearby neighborhood in the San Fernando Valley, 10-year-old Elliot Taylor, played by Henry Thomas. Henry, Henry fucking, fucking Thomas. Thomas. He gets a fucking as yeah. uh, a middle name. Uh, if you're really good at something, you get a fucking as a middle name. If you're, if you're really good one time. That's all you, you get, need, though. You get that fucking. It's like a cock push-up. It's an HSD in the Picatesny. Only one. Elliot Taylor's suspicions are roused when he pitches a baseball into a tool shed, and the ball is thrown back. They call that a pitch? <laughs> well, it's a 10-year-old pitch. He, like, lightly rolled the ball in there. Did he roll it? Was it more like he went, he went bowling with a baseball? I mean, he didn't so much overhand the thing in there, like Nolan Ryan style. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. He kind of just, it was, it was more of a lob than a pitch. <laughs> he efist into the tool shed. I think we need to go into Wikipedia and edit this so it doesn't say pitch anymore. Lob. More appropriate. Agreed. Later that night, Elliot returns with a flashlight, discovering the creature among the corn stalks. He shrieks and flees the scene. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's just a kid and a puppet yelling at each other amongst <laughs> just, corn. <laughs> E.T. and his weird chainsaw scream. It's very good. Despite the family's disbelief, 
Elliot leaves a trail of candy to lure the alien into his house. It's not just any candy. That's Reese's Pieces, baby. It's Reese's Pieces. They actually went to M&M's and they were like, hey, you want to be in our movie? And they're like, no, aliens are scary. They didn't want to be associated with aliens. Like, yeah, that's how it works. (laughs) So they went to Hershey and they were like, fuck yeah, use the Reese's Pieces. That'd be great. That blew up apparently. Like, no one really cared about Reese's Pieces until this movie. It's true. They had their biggest uptick in sales of all time because of this movie. And it surpassed M&M's briefly, too. That's Or for, like, the first time in history, too. It's like, that's insane to me. That is, that doesn't even make sense. Reese's Pieces are actually the worst of Reese's candies. I agree! But if you get me a nice cup that's been in the freezer for a little bit, hell yes. Oh, yeah. See, that's a dill. A dill I'm willing to high on. There you go. Um... That that phrase is way more fun when you mess it up, actually. Yeah, I'm more impressed that you're able to mess it up on purpose after you <laughs> mess it up by accident. That's hard to do. Before bed, he realizes the alien is imitating his movements. It's not so much he realizes it as just blatantly obvious. I like how it comes to like this realization, like he raises his arm, the alien raises his arm. He's just like, whoa, science, I science to the botany boy. <laughs> you know what I realized? He's doing what I do. The next morning, Elliot feigns sickness to stay home from school and play with him. And I have to imagine that every kid from there on after this moment did this exact same move. Everybody. repeat for forever. It's like, oh, I didn't know the light bulb trick worked. It's a good Definitely trick. using that forever now. I used to use a, sorry if you're listening, Dad. I used to use a cup of water okay. that I would put just some crumpled up bread into so it sounded like chunky a little bit when I hit the, the toilet bowl. Wow, that's yeah. next level. It was next level. And you got to like keep that thing like stored under your bed ready to go. And when you get in there, you got to make the noise like, <clears throat> like as you're doing it. Yeah. Like, ready and, to then, go. and then dump out the bread and water. Just fire the bread water in there. You got to make sure you flush before, before Pops gets in well, there. Well, obviously. You have to. Yeah. You have to. That's amazing. That's, that's next level stuff. The smell wouldn't be quite right, but I feel like the sound is believable enough. You, you've sold it. That's all you have to do. My dad's not going to come and go, I smell bullshit. I'd be like, no, you don't. You smell bread and water. <laughs> Doesn't smell like vomit in here. It smells like you were bacon. It was easy enough. It worked. It, it worked. Sounds, it sounds like a solid move. So Stay at home, watch Price is Right, and VH1 music videos all day. Oh, those Not were a days. bad day. No, not at all. Elliot can feel the alien's thoughts and emotions. Shown when the alien accidentally opens an umbrella, startling him and simultaneously Elliot several rooms away. Umbrellas are scary. Umbrellas frighten aliens and thereby <laughs> children in other rooms. This takes a while to like sink in, for me anyway. Like I haven't seen this movie in years and years. And I was like, oh yeah, I guess they did kind of show that they're already linked. But it was, I don't know, it's, it's not really like in your face. It's not in your face, but... It's about to be a whole lot weirder. It sure is. Later that day, Elliot introduces his older brother, Michael, played by Robert McNaughton. and his fucking McNaughton. I didn't want to give it to him because he came up as annoying, but then he's cool as shit. He is cool as shit. When I was a kid watching this movie, I was like, wow, he's a dickhead. And I yeah. never changed my opinion of him. But watching it now, I'm like, oh, he's a good kid. He's a good brother. He's a really good brother. And he, he cares about his mom. Like I was, all I remember when I was a kid was like, he's mean to the main character, but really. <laughs> That's what just... I called him when I was seven, the main character. You're right. <laughs> he's totally fucking up his character arc in act one. What's he supposed to do when he gets the point of no return? <laughs> this guy, 
he's being mean to Elliot, and I don't like him for it, but really, he's he's better than Elliot. Maybe he's just mad at his father. That's got to be it, because he's in Mexico with Sally, and Mommy's hurt. Exactly. Exa- well, see, that's the, the subtext that was lost on Little Me. I'm being Little You. That's my Little Brian impression. Well, it was very far off, because Little Brian didn't catch that. Now I'm going to go watch Ocean's Eleven three times to try to figure this out. I need it explained to me nine times before I understand. <laughs> That's three viewings. Got it. What a dumb kid. <laughs> what an idiot. So Elliot introduces his older brother Michael and his seven-year-old sister Gertie, played by Drew fucking Barrymore. She's good in this. She is the best part of this? I wouldn't go that far, but she's very good in this. I, I would, personally. Okay. But we're we're going to get there, actually, we to who I think is the best part, but keep going. He introduces his siblings to the alien, deciding to keep him hidden from their mother, Mary, played by D. fucking Wallace. She crushes it. She's so good. When the children ask the alien about his origins, he shows them by levitating several balls, representing his planetary system, and demonstrates his powers by reviving dead chrysanthemums. That's how I demonstrate my powers. Wikipedia, good for you. You you managed to fit all of that into one thought, and it's impressive. It is impressive, but also, is it really botany if you're doing magic and shit? Magic is just science we don't understand yet, Dave. <laughs> That's like the deepest thing I've ever heard you say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure I pulled it from a Thor movie. <laughs> oh, God. Well, it's appropriate, I suppose. Or actually, it, it might have been from Doctor Strange. This doesn't matter. 100% it was a Marvel movie, though. <laughs> I. Capes and tights. Yep. It completely adds up. <laughs> you can take the podcasters out of the capes, but you can't take the capes out of the podcasters. The alien demonstrates his healing power through his glowing fingertip on a minor cut on Elliot's finger. Not impressive. It's just He just does a little, little ouch, and everything's good. I would have been more impressed if Elliot cut off a fucking finger. It would have and been then he more... like magicked his finger back on. That's when I would have been impressed. This is just a little cut on his finger because he decided to touch the sharp part of a saw like a fucking idiot kid. Yeah, as, as far as I can tell, this alien just sweats liquid band-aids. <laughs> uh, can we quickly talk about uh, Henry Thomas and his choices? <laughs> yeah, let's, let's talk about Henry Thomas and his choices. I, I know we're not there yet, but the laugh. Like, I know everybody knows the laugh. Ha! like he's so over the top all the time like it's insane and he gets recognized like one of the greatest child actors of all time for this performance and he deserves it but man is he swinging for the fences he he does not hold back at all like you keep hearing about all these baseball scenes like oh no moving the fence moving the fence moving the fence and Henry Thomas like nay you push that motherfucker back please He's channeling his best Nick Cage. He really might be, though. (laughs) I learned everything I know from one man. Oh, that would be a monster. (laughs) He's out of his mind. At school the next day, Elliot begins to experience a much stronger empathetic connection with the alien, (laughs) including exhibiting signs of intoxication because the alien is at Elliot's home drinking beer and watching television, which... That's the life. I agree. That's the life. But how does the alien possibly pop open the top on that sweet, sweet Coors? That's a good question. That's OG Coors, too. This is like pre-Coors Light. Yeah, this is just 
classic Coors. But like, I have a normal human finger, and sometimes I struggle to get underneath that tab. And he's got his round bullshits. He can't he's magic got, yeah. that. He's got those bulbous fingers that apparently I can't tell if they have nails or not. I didn't look that hard. He does not have nails. I do not believe he has nails. So there's there's no way. No, and we've all seen that Rocco's Modern Life episode where he's so busy chewing his nails that he can't pick up the, the coin on the ground. The, and that's when exactly. he realizes he's got a problem. We found the plot hole in E.T. We did it. <laughs> we did it. And it leads to one of the more memorable scenes of this movie, which is insane. <laughs> also, Henry Thomas, child acting drunk, didn't know I needed that in my life. Uh, he kind of crushes it. It's over the top. It's a child acting drunk. But, man, yes. it's a Steven Spielberg movie. There's going to be whimsy. Even in drunk kids. Yeah, there has to be. I wonder if he went method. <laughs> Steven Spielberg's just like pumping him full of vodka. He's like, I saw a trick that we did on Raiders of the Lost Dark at that weird bar with Marion and the lady, how they were just slamming back shots. Let's do that, me and you, Let's, as we yeah. go over the script notes. <laughs> he smells like Robert Downey Jr. and his salt content is through the roof. <laughs> the beats can fall in. levels. <laughs> But then he like does that belch and it looks back at the girl and he's just like, hey, hey, you see that? And she's like, don't do that. I don't understand what's happening with him and this girl because she's <laughs> no looking idea. at him at first and then all of a sudden he's drunk and looking at her and she's like, I want nothing to do with this. And it's like, which one of you is instigating this? I can't tell. Anybody. I don't know. It's Let's get rapey, though. Let's. <laughs> Elliot proceeds to free the frogs in his biology class. How fucked up is it that the teacher's walking around with chloroform cotton balls and they put him in there and he's just like, just uh, put the top on real fast and watch him die. You don't have to watch him die, but you should. It's pretty neat. Well, they're not dying. They're just going to sleep. They're cutting them open. Well, eventually they're going to die. It's not like a King Kong thing. (laughs) It it wasn't the airplanes. It was beauty killed the beast. It wasn't the cotton ball. It was scalpels in the chest that killed the frog. (laughs) Well, he makes a point of saying, like, we're just going to put them to sleep. So when we cut them open, you can still see their hearts beating. Oh, my God. The 80s, man. The 80s. Pretty pretty messed up. When I did the whole frog thing, like, that was stiff and dead, super dead. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it smelled awful. It was the worst. But this also kind of informs Elliot's entire idea of what they're going to do to E.T. So, like, I, I understand the scene. That's a good point. As the alien watches John Wayne kiss Maureen O'Hara in The Quiet Man on television, Elliot kisses a girl he likes similarly and is sent to the principal's office. Well, he kisses a girl that he likes while standing on a child's back. Uh, yeah, some other kid just runs <laughs> over and gets under it. Just so lays under him. Just like the ultimate wingman move like for a character guy. we never knew. And like you got to imagine there's a Comic-Con out there with like Henry Thomas and Stool Kid. And Stool Kid. Or something like that. <laughs> this kid is just risking everything with chloroformed frogs jumping across the floor. He's like, I'm laying down so Elliot can kiss this girl. I'm doing it. But then as Elliot's getting dragged to like the principal's office, they have that one real fucked up shot of the frogs jumping around on the floor. And the girl's feet are there. And she like turns the one foot slightly sideways like she's horny as shit all of a sudden. Well, yeah. She it's just got, so weird. She just got kissed by a man that climbs on other men. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> it's a power move if I've ever seen one. No one's ever used another man as a stool to get my heart and affection. <laughs> and she's going to be like fucked up and have like these false feelings of like admiration as she's growing up. Like she can meet the man of her dreams and she'll just be like, you stand on his back and be like, that's fucked up. Well, you don't love me then. Yeah, she definitely unlocked a new kink that day. <laughs> 
That's got to be on Pornhub, that kink. I can only get people up you're standing, standing on, on another people. man and there's frogs everywhere. It's not so much an orgy because the four people aren't having the sex. It's just two of them are human stools underneath because they saw <laughs> E.T. once and they said, that, that's what I want to do. Oh, boy. The alien dubs himself E.T. No, he doesn't, but Wikipedia says he does. Reading a comic strip where Buck Rogers, stranded, calls for help by building a makeshift communication device and is inspired to try it himself. Elliot names him E.T. Elliot's at school drawing pictures of him, writing E.T., and he comes home and he's like, E.T., that's you now. But. Yeah, I mean, you gotta call him something, right? You can't just keep calling him the alien botanist or the, the <laughs> goblin or whatever. They do call him the goblin a lot. He is quite often referred to as a goblin. E.T. gets Elliot's help to build a device to phone home by using a speaking spell. Michael notices that E.T.'s health is declining and that Elliot is referring to himself as we. That should be like the biggest red flag ever. It should, yeah. Like he's treating Elliot like he's venom at this point. <laughs> exactly. Throughout this, the boys are unaware that E.T. is being tracked by the government. And the government is just spying on them by, like, driving a van down the street and listening to conversations. In everybody's house, and they're like, oh, these guys sound like they're talking about an alien. They weren't at the time, even. It's like, like, stop there long enough to happen to hear the alien talk part yeah. of their conversation. They waited a long time. These two kids talking are curious. They sound like they missed their dad. I bet you there's alien talk coming up. Just stay. <laughs> just stay. Uh, missing dad, that's always the precursor. That means a Steven Spielberg movie. Yeah, 100%. I've seen this one before. These kids for sure have main character energy. I can feel it in my keys. Yeah, uh, Asian Bill. Does it sound like that kid's making choices? Because that would make him a lead for sure. <laughs> we should stop here. On Halloween night, Michael and Elliot dress E.T. as a ghost to sneak him out. And they like claim it's Gertie. It's like, that mom. This, she must have like the Kahlua hard because that is not her daughter. She is clearly very distraught and distracted for this entire movie because... She's like, there's a scene where E.T. is just walking back and forth right behind her, and she'd never see a drunk alien is rampaging <laughs> through her living room and kitchen, and she has no idea it's happening. She hits E.T. with the fridge door and it collapses backwards, <laughs> and it's still hysterical. It's so still. good. So good. Elliot and E.T. head through the forest where they successfully call home. That should say phone home, Wikipedia. Do better. Do better. The next day. Elliot wakes up in the field, finding E.T. gone. Elliot returns home to his worried family. Like, the mom is, like, crying up a storm with the police there, and Elliot walks, and he looks like absolute garbage. Garbage oh, little yeah, child here. He looks here. terrible. The mom hugs him and then just tells the police officer, your job's done. Goodbye. Your services are no longer required <laughs> here. Police sketch artist, I imagine. I don't know. I have photos of the kid somewhere. Maybe not. Somewhere, maybe. I Who knows? The kid made choices probably in those photos, too. Yeah. What was he wearing? He was dressed as a hobo. It's Halloween. I mean, you gotta expect that type of answer. His brother was the hobo. He was dressed up as a hunchback. Still. I guess. He had red eyes. I feel like Halloween would be the worst time, like, for a cop and a parent for, like, the child to go missing. Oh, yeah. Like, what was the last thing he was seen wearing? Oh, Jesus. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, he's 23 years old. He was dressed up as Sonic the Hedgehog. Do with that what you will. <laughs> Ma'am, you'd be surprised how many Sonics we have in holding right now. The ancient Bill, we got another missing Sonic the Hedgehog! That makes three tonight! Michael discovers E.T. dying next to a culvert and takes him home to the also-dying Elliot. 
I guess you do it. You got to do like E.T. looks like worse than Elliot, too. Oh, he's like yeah. all he's pale and on his last and legs. Oh, gross. Not, Real not gross looking dead, dying alien. I don't, I don't like it. Already a weird looking alien. And now, now you're like, oh, that's worse. Mary becomes horrified upon discovering her son's illness and the dying alien. <laughs> <laughs> Just as a group of government agents dressed in biohazard suits led by Keys, who now has a face and he's played by Peter Coyote. Peter fucking Coyote, thank you. Invades the house. Yeah, he's he's actually very good. I like how they say biohazard suits. And no, I've seen Apollo 13. I know exactly what these suits are. <laughs> these are astronauts. These are astronauts that are coming into this home in the San Fernando Valley. Even E.T. is like, oh, cool. Spacemen. I know them. I'm closer to home. Scientists set up a lab at the house, asking Michael, Mary, and Gertie what they know about E.T. They, like, manifest destiny, this home for science. They do. They just take over the whole thing, cover it in tubes and stuff, and they're like, all right. The mother's like, this is my home! And the government's just like, don't care. They're like, I'm wearing a biohazard suit and have keys. (laughs) Peter Coyote's fucking crushing it. He actually is. I've always thought that all the government was a dick, and then watching it now, like, actually watching it after years and years and years of not, uh, Peter Coyote is one of the best things in this movie. He really is. While the scientists are treating Elliot and E.T., the mental connection between Elliot and E.T. disappears. But not before Peter Coyote gives, like, it's an all-timer in my mind. Like, it's one of the more underrated speeches that you hear in a movie. How he's saying, like, kid, like, I dreamed about this moment my entire life. I get what you're feeling right now. That alien is lucky that he found you. Yeah. And it's, like, ridiculously touching. It is surprising. For a character we've only seen as junk the entire movie, it is, it's moving. He's super earnest, that's why, and it carries on, too. Yeah. Which is strange, because you just look at all these government people as invading a living room, and I guess right. that's the worst that happens. That's not all that bad, but still. <laughs> <laughs> what do these government people try to do? They try to steal an election? Did they try to sell secret stolen documents to another country? No, no they worse. Were, they were recovering a dying alien from a living room. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to watch my soaps, and they were trying to save an alien, I guess, to try to do mouth to mouth, even though they don't really know his organs all that well. I, I don't know. It got weird. It, it got, got real, real weird. weird. They were doing chest compressions, but they were just assuming he had a heart there. <laughs> E.T., they defibrillated <laughs> him, and it did shit, because we have no idea what his anatomy is like. And we defibrillated him, and the sink turned on upstairs. I, I can't even explain that. <laughs> E.T. appears to die <laughs> while Elliot recovers. No, he fucking dies. doesn't he... appear to die. He dies. Hey, don't yell at me. Wikipedia is the one spoiling it. They literally fridge him. <laughs> they do. They put him in a giant refrigerated casket with a window just in Luckily, case there's a window <laughs> <laughs> Elliot is carried away screaming that the doctors are killing E.T. as they try to revive him this is a kid who doesn't understand medicine no has no clue when the doctors pronounce E.T. dead Michael discovers that the chrysanthemums that E.T. previously revived are dying again right he's botanying hard from the grave yeah, they're like, oh no, is the chrysanthemums are also dying. That means E.T. is definitely dying. As Elliot recovers, the scientists first return him to his family, but then Keys leaves him alone with E.T. Another touching-ass moment. He says, 
do you want a couple minutes alone with him? And yeah. Keyes even tells the scientist to get the hell out of there. Let the kid get out of his here. time. Let the kid say goodbye to his friend. And then just as you do with every body that you ever have to ID, you unzip the bag or whatever. Naturally. <laughs> Elliot says a tearful goodbye, telling E.T. that he loves him before closing the case. Oh, wakes his ass up, too. Brings him back. E.T.'s heart light begins to glow, and Elliot notices that the chrysanthemum is once again coming back <laughs> to life. <laughs> and opens the case up, and E.T. reanimates and tells Elliot that his people are returning. I guess that's all it took. Amazingly, uh, E.T., this is the most alive he is in the entire movie right <laughs> it's after true. he died. <laughs> they say it's darkest before the dawn, or something. Something like that. It's uh, vice versa for Elliot. What? <laughs> it's brightest, bef- brightest directly after the dark. <laughs> it's sort of like E.T. just says, his heart light goes on. I have Wi-Fi. Yeah, now he won't shut up. <laughs> he doesn't stop talking. Now. I love it though because Elliot's like, "Shut up, shut up!" And he's just the ET phone home. ET, what's the phone home? I got a phone home. Ten minutes to twenty phone home. Elliot and Michael steal the van that ET had been loaded into, and a chase ensues with Michael's friends joining them on bicycles, evading the authorities. I love it. I love it so much. These kids were such dicks to Elliot at the beginning of the movie. Like, no, you can't play Dungeons and Dragons with us, even though you're clearly super interested. And that right there is like the most rejection you can have. Right. When the D&D kids won't let you play, you're, you're a loser. You might be a loser. Says I, who has played D&D quite, quite a bit, actually. Have you? I have occasionally. And not actually a lot, but I have, yeah. I've always wanted to play, but I've never like actively searched out someone to play with. Yeah, you have an Maybe it's because I have, out. like, Elliot fears you are of Elliot. rejection. You no, because he like, tried. No, Dave, go away. And then I'll go into the cornfield and find an alien, or it'll be a proper coyote, not of the Peter variety, and it'll eat me. I don't know. Maybe. As long as you ruin a pizza along the way. You have to. Spike that pizza gronk style. Suddenly facing a police roadblock, E.T. helps them escape by using his telekinesis to lift them into the air and toward the forest like he had done for Elliot before. Now, here's the thing about roadblocks, is that they typically block the road. That, by that name. That is true. That this is, is the first do. time I've ever watched this movie where I went, they left a big old gap in the middle. Yeah, they had <laughs> guns, but what were they going to do with those guns? And these kids could have stayed on the road, just riding straight and probably gotten through this. I don't know if there's another car part. Like, there were two pointed at each other, but there's a giant gap. I don't know if there's a third car blocking it, but... um, Yeah, it's, it's the worst roadblock it's ever. It's not a good roadblock. And depending on which version of the movie you're watching, they didn't even have guns sometimes. Sometimes they just had walkie-talkies. That's absolutely correct. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the version I watched, they had guns. Yeah, they, it's been restored to, to guns again, and that's, that's good for the movie. You hear that, George Lucas? You can go back. <laughs> you could be like, whoops, I, uh, I made a mistake. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to the original version now. Uh, yeah, I, didn't, I did not make a mistake. I'm a genius. Thank you. <laughs> More Ewoks. <laughs> oh god <laughs> we're getting them let's not uh put that out in the world again thanks standing near the spaceship et's heart glows as he prepares to return home while mary gertie and keys show up and keys part of the government just kind of watches even he's though i think like, he's like this is unreal what's up d wallace you single huh are you <laughs> oh hey girl i got keys <laughs> this is the only line he has right here next to my crotch you see him oh jeez. They jangle right on the screen all the time. All the time. E.T. says goodbye to Michael and Gertie as she presents him with the flower 
she had revived. He had revived. Yeah, go botany this. Okay. I can't do any tea. It sounds like Stephen Hawking. I cannot do it. (laughs) (laughs) Interestingly enough, in the the Biodome E.T. sequel... We're going to use the software that Stephen Hawking no longer uses? Yeah. To do the E.T. voice? It's going to be an AI combination of E.T. and Stephen Hawking. What's up, Squirrelly? You can kiss my black hole. (laughs) He learned a lot more words. My pointer finger is the healing one. My middle finger is the you're Pauly Shore. (laughs) Ouch. (laughs) Fuck you. How does that feel, Squirrelly? Before boarding the spaceship, he embraces Elliot and tells him, I'll be right here. It's like pointing to his head, too. Pointing his glowing finger to Elliot's forehead. Not not his heart. His not forehead. his heart. I always remember that he pointed into the, like, I remember he put the finger up to Elliot's face and it lit up and Elliot yeah. jumped back. But I always, like, remember that he put it up to his he heart. Put it to his heart. I'll be right but here. But no, yeah. he put it, like, between his eyes. Right, right betwixt his eyes and his, and his forehead. Like, this is where I exist now. I live rent-free in your brain. <laughs> and uh, that's where those doctors went wrong. They uh, they were defibrillating his heart all region instead of his forehead. That must have been it. And then they killed Elliot probably and dissected his brain because they're like, there's an alien in there, yeah. according to the alien. <laughs> E.T. picks up the chrysanthemum and boards the spaceship. As the others watch it take off, the spaceship leaves a rainbow in the sky. <laughs> because it's a Steven Spielberg movie. <laughs> It should be corny as hell, and it's not. It's not. Because it's a Steven Spielberg movie. Yeah, somehow he makes the corniest thing work. He does. You just like come off this emotional high, and he rainbows just like, damn it, what a move. The more you know. <laughs> John Williams. Do, 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 What? <laughs> well, that was that a was there, John. <laughs> And that's it. That's the movie. That is E.T. from 1982, directed by Steven fucking Spielberg. Uh, 10? 10. Uh, just, uh, I know you said all those words before with the plot, but 10? Yeah, t- 10 be great. for the, That'd be the great. story and for the motivation. And yeah, this, this thing is a damn treat. It really is. It's so much better than I even remember. And every single time I've seen this movie, I feel like I say that at this point. Yeah, it's just absolutely fantastic. I mean, it's been so long since I've watched it. And I remembered all of, like, the beats of the movie, but I just didn't remember how it actually makes you feel while you watch it. Oh, it makes you have all the feels, I think, is oh, it? Oh, And, like, there's parts in this that I didn't remember having the feels, and, man, yeah. I got the feels. Yeah, I, I feel like I, I took a whole new meaning from it this time than I did as a kid. But maybe it's because the way that Steven Spielberg shot, I know we're not there yet, is it's a lot of low angles. It's a lot of, let me put you in the choose of being a child again it's maybe the farther we get away from our childhood maybe it's starting to resonate in a different way for us at this point yeah who knows but i mean it it completely works full-blown 10 full-blown 10 we move on to casting henry fucking thomas henry fucking thomas i thought would have had a much larger career after this movie his audition tape for this is insanely famous oh yeah like how he just went all out crying on the spot for spielberg going so over the top spielberg having to stop and say you got the job kid like on the spot 
Yeah, that's that's unreal. That as a lead for this type of movie, having to carry all that emotional weight and acting against a puppet for the most part. <laughs> Man, does it work. And the supporting cast is all really good, too. I mean, I think Drew Barrymore does such a good job in this movie and steals every scene she's in. I agree, and I think Peter Coyote is one of the unsung heroes of this thing. Absolutely. Even and though I, he's technically the bad guy, but not. Right. I think that's the interesting part about <laughs> it. It is. It's an interesting turn that he he turns out to just be in support of, you know, like, this is a real alien. This is unreal. It's a, it's a cool move. Ten again. Ten again for casting. Can we talk about Matthew Demerit? Who's Matthew Demerit? There were three different people that were inside the uh, the E.T. costume. Like, sometimes it's a puppet, sometimes it was a, somebody was actually wearing it. Okay. Matthew Demerit, um, there was, there was uh, Tamara Detroit and Pat Bylon were two little people that they hired to play E.T., but Matthew Demerit was a 12-year-old boy who was born without legs. Oh my god. Any scene where E.T. is walking, it is Matthew Demerit. Uh, full-blown 10. Yeah. Jeez. Just unreal. Like, they hide it a little bit to a point, and then... You can't hide it all the time, though. You got to show the full alien. Yeah. That is so impressive. Yeah. So anytime ET gets knocked over, it is this twelve-year-old legless boy getting just taking pushed, a fridge to the dome, taking a fridge to the face. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, ten for casting. Let's talk about the protagonist. The protagonist is going to be Elliot. Yes, hundred percent. Elliot is incredibly good. Yes, I think that he gets Spielberged a little too hard at points. And I say that because Spielberg is really good at working with children now. Yes. Then he didn't give a damn about kids. And he even said that this is the movie that like changed him. Yeah, this is the movie that prepared him for fatherhood. Well, he said that he recognized like halfway through production, like I'm a father on this movie to these kids. I'm working with children day yeah. in and day out. And they shot st- this movie canonically. In order to help the kids have their emotional arcs going through, which is a smart which, move. Brilliant, and we'll get to that. I like Elliot. I well, I, I love Elliot. I think he does a fantastic job. Yeah. It's just some of those Nick Cage choices. <laughs> it's the the yelling and the and the crying and the over the top. Uh but even in the scene where like he's crying on top of the casket, it's because he's he's fake when he goes and he fake cries, it's even more like, oh my god, this kid is hamming it up. Oh, yeah. I want to go, uh, we're going to punish him and go nine. Nine. Yeah. <laughs> you piece of shit. One of those famous <laughs> child performances of all time. Nine. Suck it. Nine. Halfway through the movie, Steven Spielberg's like, oh, man, these kids look up to me. I got to stop getting Henry drunk. <laughs> Let's talk about the antagonist. The government? I guess it is just, yeah, the government's crotches. They're bad. And sometimes they have keys. And sometimes they have emotions also. But really, all their all the government's goal here is is to find this alien that is harbor. It's just taking up residence in this home in California, right? And then they even like treat it like just a regular old patient at a point. Yeah, like, yeah, they're running like a small DNA test on it, I guess. But they're like, this thing's dying. We gotta gotta save it, right? And and yeah, so like they're not even. I mean, they are working against the protagonist but they kind of they they don't have it doesn't seem like they have malintent i want to go with like a six they're not really a threat but they are there to push the story along to have stakes at the end to create an exciting scene 
of we got to get this alien home. Yeah, yeah. So Later. They're, they're there, and then they make a bad roadblock with their guns and sometimes walkie-talkies. The worst roadblock. Six it is. Let's talk about the screenplay. Melissa Matheson. Yes. Crushes it. She absolutely does. Uh, apparently, she, she wrote this thing uh, first, first round, and they were like, this is excellent. They had two rewrites of it afterwards, and most of the stuff never took. They were like, they just kept going back to the original script. There were a few little things that got added in, but for the most part, this is like a one and done. It's funny because when you look at this script, there's a couple really, really good lines that stand out. Like E.T. Phone Home is now iconic. Oh, absolutely. But a lot of the other stuff doesn't really stand out all that much. It's just appropriate to the story that we see. And I know Steven Spielberg started writing the story also as a way to like cope with his parents' divorce and then eventually became about a kid and an alien, about loneliness and whatnot. Well, he also had an imaginary alien friend when he was a kid, apparently. As we all did, right? For sure. Right? Also, I like to think that this movie really popularized the phrase penis breath. That's such a good line, too, and he screams it at that kid. Oh, yeah, he fires it off so good. And, like, and even D. Wallace laughs at it. <laughs> so how good. can you not? It's so good. I want to go uh, an eight. I, that feels appropriate. I don't know why, but it feels, I'm going I'm, from the gut, man. we got to go from the gut. That's exactly. how this works. It's just how, however it feels, and this feels like an eight, which brings us to style and tone. It's one of the most iconic movies, A, of all time, B, of the 80s. Yeah, for sure. And I love that it was so much of it was shot so that you couldn't see the adults from the waist up, except for D. Wallace. So you're just automatically in that kid mindset. Like even the teachers at school, you don't really see them above the waist. I think it even goes farther than that because this house feels iconic now, too. Like oh, when he walks out of the house and he walks to the tool shed that has the light on at all times, so it creates the perfect amount of shadows with the corn in the background. Oh, also, so there's good. like these these little touches that just work. And that closet that goes between Elliot and Gertie's room with the and- stained glass window that creates a certain lighting effect inside of it too to have the just, Spielberg whimsy. You got to have that Spielberg whimsy. Ten, fine, done. Yeah, that that's a ten. And our next category is director. There's certain things about directors that really stand out. And up until this point, with Spielberg, you had a Close Encounters. You had Indiana Jones movies. You have a lot of, I mean, he's, at this point in his career, he's an extremely well-respected director already. Yeah. And yet he is still growing. And here especially, I feel like this pushes him to the next level of what Steven Spielberg has become. Absolutely. And it's the point that even now... Amblin Entertainment uses the bicycle silhouette with the moon behind it as its logo. And that's just as iconic with Steven Spielberg as it is with the movie E.T. Right. Yeah. The, the two are, are synonymous forever. Really? Yeah. Synonymous is the word. But he's also known for working with child actors. He's known for having a trope of the missing father. Yeah. And this is where he learned it. For the most part, this is where he learned how to be the Steven Spielberg that we all know and love. He recognized that he was being a father to these actors on set. Yeah. And that's what he learned to lean into. Unleash the child side to it. Even on like Halloween, he came in dressed as an old lady and acted as an old lady directing for an entire day just to entertain the kids. Oh, to keep the amazing. feeling light on set. 
those are the little touches of a director that well, just that being goes a director. So a lot of people think is just pointing the camera at something and shooting it pretty. It's like no, that's not. That's a director. That's cinematographer. That's production designer. That's actors. That's a lot of different people coming together to make something look amazing. Yeah. But with the director, it's all about the tone and the vision and what you get out of the actors in order to tell the appropriate story. And right. Steven Spielberg pulls off a magic trick with this one. Yeah, like we're going to get he... there when it comes to the box office. But <laughs> I mean, it's just this is just one of the best directed films ever made. Yeah. And it comes down to little choices that make such a big difference, like how he hired doctors working out of USC Medical Center to play the government agents trying to rescue E.T. because he didn't think actors would be able to pull it off because of all it's the technical a great medical little choice. dialogue. It's just small things like that. It's such a minuscule part to do, but it matters, especially when you're trying to, at that point, bridge such a tragedy of E.T. dying and Elliot suffering to having that huge emotional climax. It's super yeah. important yeah. to have a bit of that realness in a story about a kid and an alien. <laughs> you gotta make it believable. Eleven. Turning it up to 11. We are turning uh, it up to 11. For Steven Spielberg, of course. That brings us to the sweet stylings of John Williams for the music category. One of his most iconic. And listening to this, I actually had to pause it because E.T. has its own theme. Yes. That we all know and we all love it. You yes. know it when they're on the bicycles flying. You don't hear that theme until E.T. actually lifts those balls in the air to show off his solar system. That's around 39 minutes into the movie. Right. So he doesn't establish that light motif until at least the second act. And then obviously, it's John fucking Williams in John, John fucking Williams fucking prime. Williams. Yeah, I mean, this, this score did get nominated and won Best Original Score. 11 again. There it is. Turned John Williams, uh, always earning those extra points. He uh, finds a way. That's right. <laughs> The next category is box office, and who boy going to get broken with this one. Uh, we said just you know last week and the week before that this one is set in stone. If a movie makes a certain amount, a certain percentage of its budget, that it gets a certain score. Now, Brian, I'm going to stop you right there because <laughs> we're going to say 11 for this one. But why don't you hit our audience with the numbers because this one broke the world. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the the way that our scale is established, it's that anything that makes 250% of its original budget is a, considered a blockbuster, gets a 10. This movie's budget was $10.5 million. It is one of the highest grossing films of all time. $10.5 million. Dollars. the seventh highest grossing film of all time, <laughs> adjusted for inflation. Uh, it was the highest grossing movie of all time from 1983 to 1993 when it was of course, usurped by another Steven Spielberg movie. Yep. Because this movie made $792 million. In its time, yes. That's a lot of money. It's $2.634 billion adjusted for inflation. Now, if, if you're curious what the percentage of the budget that is, <laughs> that's 7,551%. We're putting the brakes on ourselves at 11, <laughs> and it's a good way to uh, test ourselves if we're willing to go higher, and we are not. Uh, no, no. We, we have, have to have some we restraint. We have to have some sort of restraint, but 7,500 is a lot more than 250. One so of the most think, profitable films ever made. 
uh, unreal. Absolutely unreal. Absolutely. It had no problem beating Grease 2 that came out the same week. No, no, it did not. <laughs> <laughs> and dethroning Star Trek 2 and Rocky 3. That is an 11. It is absolutely an 11. And if you want to know why it's an 11, go read Roger Ebert's review of this. I thought about reading parts of it, but to me, this is like one of his most beautiful reviews he ever wrote because he wrote it in 1992, 10 years after this movie came out. And he says, I've seen this movie a lot in the 10 years since it came out, but he writes a letter to his grandchildren. He calls it Dear Raven and Emile, and it has the Ebert thumbs up that you rarely see on a lot of the reviews. Wow. And- he said that he was so excited to just share this movie with his grandchildren. One of them was four. One of them was seven. And he said, I kept a half eye on the movie. I kept a half eye on them just to see their reactions. And they didn't budge the entire time. They got scared in the place you're supposed to get scared. They felt the feelings of happiness when you're supposed to feel the feelings of happiness. He said, this is one of those movies that's going to survive generations. But he was so happy that he got to share this movie with his grandchildren, because of the way that Steven Spielberg directed it, especially, he pointed to one part in particular, and it was right when E.T. was about to get onto the spaceship at the end, and the other alien is there waiting for him, and he and his grandson said, that's his mommy. Oh, wow. To which Roger didn't have to say anything, because yeah. the way that Steven Spielberg left it was open-ended. He didn't go about saying, like, Hi, E.T., it's me, Mommy. Come on on board the ship, son, or whatever it was. He left it open, and he used the silence in order to fill the emotion, and a kid got something entirely different out of it than Roger Ebert ever got. And that right there is the power of film in general, is using the silence, the open-endedness, in order to get the right emotions. Like, we see this movie end on the spaceship leaving in Elliot's face and then fade to black, and it's not even to fade to black, it's to cut the black. But there was a final scene at the end of this that they did shoot with Elliot being the dungeon master playing D&D with his brother and his friends because now he's accepted because he was kind of the one who got the alien or whatever. And he said, we don't fucking need that. No, that that's unnecessary. It took away from the emotional high that he's went through. Uh, go read Roger Ebert's review. It's actually like the most beautiful review I've ever seen him write. Yeah, it doesn't have any snark to it. He's legitimately just excited to share a film with his grandchildren and it's so awesome touching and lovely yeah that's you love to see it you do you do and you know art is open to interpretation and it absolutely is that is what these films are and that is going to lead us into the final category impact on the industry Uh, 11 again sounds right right (laughs) 11 again sounds right can we just talk about how columbia pictures passed on this movie so, <laughs> that happens more often than you think with a lot of these huge hits. So Spielberg went to uh, MCA, the parent company of Universal. MCA bought the script from Columbia for a million dollars, and Columbia retained a contractual 5% of the film's net profits. Good for them. So Columbia president John Veitch claimed that, I think we made more on that picture than we did on any of our films in 1982. <laughs> That's amazing. And it's good. They retitled the movie to E.T. the Extraterrestrial and not A Boy's Life, like it was originally called. <laughs> or E.T. and Me was another one. Oh, God. That was the original script title, I think. Man, uh, it's an 11, for sure. This it's movie a, it's an changed film. It was nominated for nine Oscars. It won four. Uh, the winner of Best Picture, Richard Attenborough, Gandhi. Gandhi? 
said, I was certain that not only would E.T. win, but that it should win. It was inventive, powerful, and wonderful. I make more mundane movies. There you go. I mean, if Richard Attenborough is saying it, you got to believe him. And later on in his career, 12 years later, Richard Attenborough shows up in Jurassic Park as exactly John Hammond. Yeah. And what this movie did for Reese's Pieces. This is an 11. Not just the film industry, but the candy industry. Just as important sometimes. The box office concession stands started selling so many Reese's Pieces, and that's part of the industry, damn it. It sure is. That is going to give E.T. a total score of 97. So, Brian, we have one rule on this show. We do. At this point, at least. If the arbitrary score that we give the movies lines up with the Rotten Tomato score or the Rotten Tomatoes audience score, we have to pound our beers. That is correct. Rotten Tomatoes, 1 to 100. What are you thinking? 100. 99. <laughs> Awfully <laughs> damn close. We are somehow uh, killing this. We are like right in that ballpark where it needs to be. Yeah. My beer's shaking a little. It was worried it was about to go down the gullet in a fast way. We might be legit critics at this point. I don't know about that. We're <laughs> pumping the brakes. Uh, but 97 is now our new high score out of two movies. So uh, It sure is. I guess this is the part of the show where, Brian, I ask you, because next week's your pick. It is. Why don't you beer me a movie? I'm going to do that, and I'm going to ask that you bear with me for a minute, <laughs> because you earlier said that you wanted to help us establish what this scoring system should be. Oh, uh, you have me shaking a little. You picked a movie that you knew was going to score very high. I absolutely did. And I want to assure everybody <laughs> listening oh, no. that we're not just going to be doing fanboying <laughs> movies all the time that are going to break our own scoring system and, and having a lot of fun. I wanted to talk about a Thanksgiving movie next week okay. because it is Thanksgiving. And there is an obvious choice, and it's not that one. But instead, I wanted to go with something that could very easily be a pick for our crappy hour show on Patreon. This is so exciting. Really want to test out this scoring system. And I want to, once again, state, me and Brian do not share our picks with each other. Everything <laughs> is completely hidden and secret and genuine. And that's half the fun of it, where I I've been waiting this entire week for like, what's he going to pick next week? This is so exciting. You have no idea what the other person is going to pick. And if anybody had money on this for episode three, then you're about to cash in big because this is this is a very random pick. Brian, you've teased me enough. Hit me. What are we watching next week? Next week, we're going to be talking about the 2011 Dennis Dugan directed Jack and Jill. Oh, sweet Jesus, Brian. <laughs> you're just burning it all down, aren't you? Uh, we really have to test out the limits of this score. For the show, I think that's the right decision, yes. But at the same time, I hate you. That's fair. That's fair. But uh, Adam <laughs> Sandler uh, and Adam Sandler. Yeah, yes. In Jack and Jill for our Thanksgiving episode. Sweet Jesus. Um, yep, we're testing out the scale. That, <laughs> see how well it works. That is the intent. We're going to find some things out next week. Wow. All right. In the meantime, thank you for listening. Be sure to rate, review, subscribe. Join us on Patreon this month for David Bowie's 1972 album, The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, which will be featuring one Dave Novak. He is the one who beard us that album. Yeah, we're trying something a little new, something a little different. Yeah. Why we, not? Uh, 
stepping up the game over on Patreon because we basically brought our old Patreon show to you. That's right. So now we got to go above and beyond over there. Also on Patreon, everything that we make this month is going directly to Extra Life uh, for children's cancer hospitals. Loosen up those purse strings. Give to the kids. It's for a good cause. I don't care if you take your money back next month. I really don't. That's, Sincerely yeah. don't. But this month, it's for the kids. It's for the kids. And you also get the added benefit of if you want to suggest a movie for the end of the month, you'll get two picks. Your pick will count double if it you will. are one of our patrons. And since we're lazy, we'll leave it double on the list, even if you take your money back. For those picks, you can send it to us on social media at Beer Me a Movie on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitch, and at Beer Me a Movie Pod on Twitter. Or you can email them to Beer Me a Movie Pod at gmail.com. For the audience pick for the end of November, we are up to 12 movies. And just to scare you a little bit, eight of those are patrons. <laughs> that you know of. Right. So they, uh, patrons make up four picks. They get doubled, so it's eight. Uh, and then the other four are normies who should donate. So they can get double the odds. Exactly. Brian, you got anything else? That is it for me. Fantastic. We're going to see you guys next week for Brian's pick. And I can't stress it enough that it's Brian's pick <laughs> when we talk about Jack and Jill. We'll see you then. I need to remind everyone again that Jack and Jill was Brian's pick. Be mad at him. Please don't be mad at Dave. Dave loves you. Brian clearly does not. See you next week.